You can turn to Ezra chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 363. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In Ezra chapter 4, we see that God's people are a set-apart people that will be opposed in this world, yet must persevere in the work God has called us to do. As we pick up the story, God had previously scattered his people from the land, allowing them to be conquered by a foreign nation. But after a time of discipline, he is now sovereignly moved to bring them back home and rebuild. And as we saw last week, the people got off to a great start, getting after the mission, devoted to his word, and celebrating his grace. As we pick up the story of chapter 4, we will see that all is humming along just fine until the people of the land rise up in opposition to the work God has called his people to do. And as a result of that opposition, we see God's people stop working on what God had called them to do. Reading now from just the tail end of chapter 3, then 1 through 5, and then, then picking up verse 24. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, And bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we open your word, Lord, help us to... Uh, come and submit underneath it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do your work through your word in us this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, guard us this morning from uh, any kind of legalism or performance. Lord, help us to see your grace, see your design for your people. And uh, Father, do pray that you would stir us up to better reflect your glory to the world around us. Uh, We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The first call that we see in Ezra chapter 4 is that God's people are called to be a set-apart people. As a set-apart people, they are called to live in holiness, and they're called corporately to preserve their distinctiveness from those who don't honor God. Israel was called to be a set-apart people. We can see this back in Exodus 19. 
5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. (coughs) Among all the nations that don't honor God, Israel was to be a light to the nations by living as a distinct nation, walking in God's covenant in a way that gave the nations a picture of what living under God's good and gracious reign was like. And in order to live out that calling, they must preserve their distinctiveness from the other peoples. There's no room to water down their set-apartness, their holiness, by bringing outsiders into their membership that do not share their covenant commitment. And on first reading, we may be tempted to wonder why Israel would so strongly rebuff this offer of help from the outsiders. I mean, they come offering to help build the temple, and they come even professing their faith in God. What could be wrong with that? It can look like Israel is just being elitist or something. However, the author does help us with that. With all the benefit of hindsight, he writes of these events after they took place, and in verse 1, these people are called adversaries or enemies in some translations. Further, in verse 4, they're called the people of the land. This is a phrase that we see 12 times in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and each time the phrase indicates not only just like geographic location, but it, it indicates their spiritual location as those who do not worship God. Going further, we know who these people are from 2 Kings 17. Remember we talked about in the first week when the Babylonians conquered a land, they would take the people and then resettle them in other areas. So that's why Israel left the, 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 their land in exile is because the Babylonians came in and resettled them in another area. These people of the land are peoples resettled to the area around Jerusalem from other lands. We see in 2 Kings 17, 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And then there in 2 Kings 17.33, we read about these people of the land. We read about their spiritual commitments. It says, so they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So these are the people that are coming to the the Jews and asking to help rebuild the temple. People who serve Yahweh, they think, but also serve other gods. If we were to read back even in the early part of 2 Kings 17, we would note that mixing with other peoples and then thereby adopting their religious practices is exactly what led Israel to receive the discipline of exile to begin with. So as one commentator notes, for the returnees to cooperate with the peoples of the land in this new start, would indicate ongoing unfaithfulness and a failure to remain faithful to their calling to be God's distinct people, the type of compromise that had led them to this very point in the first place. And so Israel's no 
to the offer of help is the right move. It shows us that they have learned from their past and they're seeking to preserve their distinctiveness as a people, that they're, that they're seeking to live out their calling to be a set-apart people in the midst of other peoples. Israel <coughs> was called to be both exclusive and inclusive. Exclusive. This is the word our culture loves, exclusive. As an exclusive people, Israel was called to be very careful to maintain a distinctness from the peoples around them. They were called to live clearly different in accordance with God's covenant in a way that was plain to the other nations. Again, in this, they would show what living under God's rule looked like. Therefore, they were called to be careful about who was received as a member of the nation. We will see this more in chapter 6 in the careful way they go about registering the people, making sure that those on the inside share their covenant commitments. And so they were called to be an exclusive people with clear boundaries and a clear inside and a clear outside to the people of God. Now here, someone might say, but that's Israel. That's not the church. We're different now. We have a missional task that demands that we be more welcoming to those outside the faith. So all that exclusive stuff doesn't apply to the church. It does, though. Though there may be ways this looks different for us today, the principle remains. Because, listen, get this. Israel also had a missional task. The that missional task also demanded that they be welcoming to those outside of the faith. We'll see in chapter 6 that there was a way for it, there was a way into the people of God for outsiders. Speaking of eating the Passover lamb in Ezra 6:21, we see this. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. That's outsiders being brought in by leaving their past religious faith and, and, and worshiping God alone. The outsider can become part of the people of God. All they have to do to get on the inside is to separate themselves from their prior way, or what we would say, repent, and commit themselves to the Lord, or what we would say, believe, trust in, place your faith in the Lord. Remember we saw this in Rahab, in Joshua 2 and 6, during the Advent series? We saw it with Ruth. We saw outsiders who were not part of the, the, the people of God brought into the people of God. And we see it throughout the Old Testament where outside converts are received into God's people by their converting to worship God according to the covenant. And so in that way, Israel was called to be inclusive, open, inviting, hospitable, welcoming. But here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean being wishy-washy on who is in and who is out. It doesn't mean adopting a belong-before-you-believe kind of practice. Because to pretend like outsiders our insiders would dilute their distinctiveness 
and would likewise actually harm their witness for outsiders. To say to someone outside the faith, it's easy to get in. No, you don't need to leave that behind. You can bring it with you is really a terribly unloving lie. They were called to be a set-apart people, thereby distinct and exclusive, but they also had a missional task, thereby they were called to be welcoming and inclusive for anyone that would turn and share their faith commitments. And really, it's only on the, on the surface that these two things seem opposed. We may have a reaction against this, living in a culture that places a premium on inclusiveness. But when you consider it fully, it really only makes sense. Here in the Old Testament, you can become a Jew, you can call yourself a Jew, and you can be welcomed in. All you have to do is actually become a Jew. In the same way, as the heir of all the promises made to Israel, the church is at the same time exclusive and inclusive. The church is exclusive in that it is set apart, distinct, holy. We see in 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is Old Testament language applied now to the church. That tells us that something from the Old Testament continues into the church. And as a distinct, set-apart people, we're called to live countercultural lives as a countercultural community. In doing so, we give a picture to the outside world of what living under God's reign is like. John Piper captures well the God-glorifying motivation for living set apart. He says this, we live in order to get attention for God. If we don't live for God's glory, we become simply a little echo of a God-neglecting culture. We fit in so well to this world that we can't direct anyone's attention out of the world, which is where God is. We are just so afraid of not being in step that we blend in so well that nobody's saying, wow, look at God. We are a kingdom people with Christ as our king, and that should make an evident difference in how we live. And in places where our kingdom values and convictions align with the culture around us, alleviating suffering, true injustice, and so on, then representing the kingdom in those moments says, means saying, amen, that's true, we should do something about that. Where culture aligns with Christ's kingdom, Christians can receive that. But in the many places where our kingdom values and convictions depart from the culture around us, we must stand firm on our convictions under the lordship of Christ. And so where culture is at odds with Christ's kingdom, Christians must reject that. On the current trajectory of our culture, it seems like we will increasingly face situations where we must choose between pleasing God and pleasing the world. Uh, it's interesting to note, though, 
when we talk about the current trajectory of our culture, that God could bring about revival and do a great work in our land and change the trajectory of our culture. He's done it before in the 1700s, church attendance in the United States was in the single digits of percentage-wise. But on the current trajectory, where, where, where it seems like things are going, we might, we, we, we seem to be increasingly having to choose between pleasing God and pleasing the world. Is Jesus the only way? Is there a place called hell? Is extramarital sex wrong? Is dishonesty, is dishonesty in business okay? Is drunkenness a sin? Are there only two genders? Is an LGBT marriage actually a marriage? And in those times, we may face the same pressure God's people faced here. Please God and endure opposition or compromise and keep the peace. In those moments, the Christian must above all else seek to please God and then just let the chips fall where they will. Our corporate witness as the distinct people of God demands it. In those moments, the world out there doesn't get to define whether we are being loving, being compassionate, doing good, and so on. Christians don't play by the world's rules, and therefore, we don't accept the world's scorecard. Likewise, the church is exclusive in that the church can only affirm Christians as being in the family. The church can, then can only receive professing and practicing Christians into membership in the church. Really, that only makes sense. In membership, the local church is saying, we hear your profession in the gospel, and we joyously affirm you. And in membership, the person coming forward is saying, I want this local church to be responsible for me, and I will be accountable to this local family. And so when we affirm a member, the church is saying, we will be responsible for you. We will hold you accountable. Also, you be responsible for us too, and you hold us accountable as well. And that corporate belonging and mutual accountability and responsibility is an important part of walking with Jesus. Because it's by this mutual accountability and responsibility that we preserve our distinctness as the people of God. When we build one another up, when we teach, when we encourage, we are preserving ourselves as a set-apart people. When we graciously push back, wisely exhort, and lovingly warn, we are doing good to one another, doing good for that Christian, but we are also preserving the church as a set-apart people and preserving the church's witness as a countercultural community. And even when we have to go through those heartbreaking times of church discipline, when we've privately and graciously exhorted a member to turn from sin, when we've come with another to lovingly reinforce that, and then with agony, tears, and heartbreak, we have to go through the process of the church removing someone from membership. We are even in that moment doing good for that person by pleading with them to repent, by speaking clearly that they have no reason to trust that they are in Christ, and we're also preserving the church as the distinct people of God by saying with heavy hearts, 
That's not a Christian. That's what we see in places like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and elsewhere. But get this. On the surface, the church as an exclusive community sounds unloving or self-righteous. Okay? Self-righteousness is an affront to the gospel and the Christian should seek to kill self-righteousness as vehemently as we kill any sin in our lives. But on the surface, it can sound unloving or self-righteous, but we must embrace our calling to live Christ's righteousness out as a holy, set-apart people devoted to him. Because on reflection, the church as an exclusive community with clear boundaries on who is in and who is out is not something we need to apologize for. It's glorious and it's beautiful and it's wildly loving to those who are on the inside and it's also wildly loving to those who are on the outside. By preserving this distinctness of the church, we protect the corporate witness of the church and therefore we love the world by better showing the world the implications of the gospel. By preserving the distinctness of the church, we care for one another because we clearly know who in our midst we should call to walk in the implications of the gospel. You don't have to like wonder if a church member is a professing Christian and if you should call them to walk in the implications of the gospel. You just know that. By preserving the distinctness of the church, we love the world, the outsider, by just calling a spade a spade and telling the truth about where they are. In Ezra chapter four, outsiders come to the Jews and say, we're one of you. The Jews say, no, you're not. Not with your worship of the other gods alongside the Lord. And by holding that line, they are being loving. The same holds for us. It would be egregiously unloving to say to someone, you're a Christian. You're secure in Christ. If their profession or their life gives no clear reason to say so. That would be unloving. But the church is also inclusive. We're a set-apart people, but with a missional calling, aiming to invite those on the outside to come inside through faith in Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, yes, distinct, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as an inclusive people, we must live with a certain outward orientation to those that don't yet know the grace of Christ. So hear me, I don't mean for a second for exclusive to mean this is for us and not for you. What I mean is that there's an inside and an outside to the family of God. But the people on the inside seek to live our lives to give a shop glass window picture of the gospel. We seek to open our mouths to speak the gospel, and those of us on the inside pour ourselves out, inviting those on the outside to come to Christ and be adopted into his family. Our posture is welcoming, hospitable, inviting. Come and see, go and tell, all of that. We live distinct in order that God would use us to see more come into his family. 
Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please don't mishear me. We're glad that you're here. You are welcome in our services, welcome in our Bible studies, welcome in our classes, welcome in our homes, welcome at our dining room tables, welcome in our lives. And you're welcome in all of those places even if you don't believe. There's space for you, for your questions, for just watching what the gospel looks like lived out. So we're glad that you're here. And to be more clear, we don't care what you did last night, last week, last month, last year, and so on. You may think, if you only knew this, then you wouldn't be glad I'm here. Nope. None of us came to Jesus worthy of him. All of us came to Jesus with great sin, great brokenness, and rebel hearts far from God. So you don't clean up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus unclean and let him wash you clean. So none of us deserve to be part of the, whole, the family of God. None of us deserve to be in the people of God. It's not our performance that qualifies us to be in this set-apart people. It's Jesus' performance. It's because he took what we deserve on the cross that by faith we can receive the perfect life he deserves. So if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, then out of love for you, I can't call you a Christian when you're not one. And I think you understand that. But even while you are not one, you are welcome among us. And, 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 at the moment you turn and trust in Jesus, then you're no longer just a welcome visitor among us. At that moment, you're welcomed in as a fellow brother and sister adopted into the family of God by faith, which is the only way any of us got here to begin with. So church, we are a set-apart people. God's people have always been set apart to be a countercultural community while also having an orientation to those outside. That's not something to hide from or apologize for. That's something to embrace and live out. Going on, the second and greatest call of this passage is this. As a set-apart people living in a world in rebellion to God, we will be opposed. No matter how faithful, righteous, just, gracious, winsome we are, we will still face opposition in this world. Jesus promises that while at the same time pointing us to our hope. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you look down to verse 4 and 5, we see how the adversaries responded when their offer of help was rejected. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. When their offer of help is rebuffed by Israel, then their true colors come out. Then they turn to discouraging, intimidating, and even bribing to stop the work from going forward. In 1 through 3, they made it seem like they too wanted to see the temple rebuilt. 
But now that they can't have it their way, they pursue even unrighteous means to see it stopped. And note this about the situation that Israel was in. Their no to the offer of help protected their distinctiveness and therefore was the right move. But their no, they're doing the right thing, also brought with it the hard road of opposition. Compromise would have brought peace, but holiness brought opposition. Okay, sometimes the right way forward is the hard path forward. The devoted path might be the difficult path. Sometimes on the front end of a decision, we can look out ahead and think, I know how this is going to go if I take this stand. If I don't go to this thing, if I say this, if I speak up, there's going to be blowback on me. And then we can be tempted to rationalize and wonder, what really is the right way forward? Do I just give a little here in, in, in order to maintain the relationship? Should I just compromise con- my convictions a little bit in order to just keep my job? I mean, the Lord doesn't want me to be homeless. But listen, sometimes that's just too much calculus going on. The, the right way forward may be the hard way And when we hit those moments, we can't be slaves to our comfort and we can't be beholden to the opinion of the world. James 4 tells us starkly, starkly, that we can live to be the friend of the world or we can live to please God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. Again, our scorecard is not what the world thinks. Our standard is what pleases God. And sometimes we just have to live out our convictions, let the chips fall where they fall, endure the opposition, and then trust God with the results. Can I spoil the ending? The temple gets built. In verse 4 and 5, we see the initial opposition. In verses 5 through 7, we can see the span of opposition as the author then takes time to show us this. He says this happens all the days of Cyrus and in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Ahasuerus and in the days of Artaxerxes. The author wants us to see In summary, now what we will then see throughout the rest of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this opposition spans the entirety of the rest of the book, from Cyrus to Darius to Ahasuerus and and to Artaxerxes. Everything they do, everything they accomplish toward what God has called them to do, they do in the midst of opposition. Here, all the king's reigns listed in short succession together shows us from the letter, from start to finish, from beginning to end of the book, God's people are being opposed. Now, we need to see something about the structure of Ezra 4 in order to to understand what's going on 
in verse 5 through 23. From the end of verse 5 to verse 23, we have a break in the timeline, and the author looks ahead to the future. It, I, I've given a chart to, of dates to help you see this, but first, don't scurry to copy all of that down. Okay? If you want this information, it's already on Church Center for you, and you can come see me afterward. And second, don't be overwhelmed. There's no quiz coming in base group tonight, unless you're in Matt's group. There will be a quiz. But here's what we need to see in order to understand the text in 5 through 23. Ezra 4, 1 through 5 happens in live time of the story. It just follows along in the timeline, and that's somewhere around 537. Then verses 5 through 23 covers a span of almost 100 years from 537 to sometime just before Nehemiah comes back in 445. Then we see that in the, in the, the, the kings that are listed there. Then the last verse, verse 24, this is why we read it this way in the beginning. The, the last verse, verse 24, the writer picks back up from verse 5, and we're back in live time again, following along with the story and summarizing the period where nothing happens from 537 to 520. So then, big takeaway, okay? Here's the big idea. The end of 5 through verse 23 is a flash forward written for a purpose by the Holy Spirit-inspired author to show us something about opposition. Biblical history is theological history, and it's God's self-revelation to us. So it's not just concerned with the timeline of events. Its foremost concern is to reveal God to us by evaluating that history. Here we see the author include this here to show us the fierceness of the opposition and so that we can see a snapshot of just how far these adversaries are willing to go with that opposition. So we can see that they were opposed over a long span of time, but there's also a few other things about opposition that we can glean from these letters. First, we see that God's people are conspired against. In verse 7, we see the adversaries conspiring together to write to Artaxerxes. In verse 9 through 10, we see everyone that signed on to this letter. The short of it is, everyone in the region signed on to the letter except for the Israelites. Okay, Beyond the river there is the name of the, the province, and everybody else signs on to this letter except the Jews. So after naming a few prominent nations and signatories, they say the catch-all, you see this in verse 10, the rest of the nations. Then in verse 11, they describe themselves as all the men of the province beyond the river. And so we see this about opposition that they face. This is Israel versus everyone. They're in a tough spot in the minority with everyone else working against them. They are then desperate for the hand of God to be with them through this. Next, we can see that Israel faced lies, half-truths, and slander. We can see this coalition's tactics in the letter in verse 12 through 14. 
Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. (coughs) They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the, the palace and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. Up to this point, Israel's done nothing wrong to earn the charges of rebellion or disloyalty. The enemy's right to Israel, or to right to Persia, look, we're loyal to you. So we want you to know about this disloyal, rebellious stuff going on over there in Jerusalem. Israel, as an opposed people, they endure half-truths, lies, and slander as this coalition schmoozes and stokes fear in order to get their way. Going on, we see that God's people suffer injustice. Beginning down in verse 17, we see Artaxerxes' response. Artaxerxes says, in effect, I got your letter, I did some research, and you're right. Jerusalem has... It's had mighty kings with large territories, and we can't have that happen again. So, verse 21, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And so now we see even an official decree written down somewhere between 464 and 445, telling Israel to stop their work on rebuilding the walls. As an opposed people, God's people will sometimes even suffer injustice for seeking to live set apart. Fourthly, we can see God's people face intimidation and force. 4.23, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And so then the work rebuilding the walls stops just before Nehemiah's day. The New Testament promises us just as much today. I'm hard-pressed to think of a New Testament book that doesn't touch on opposition. Jesus says this will be the case in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We see this again in Jesus' prayer before he himself is betrayed and arrested in John 17. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus tells us that Christians will be opposed by the world and opposed by the evil one. But listen, even knowing that opposition, Jesus doesn't pray for us to be taken out of the world. He prays that we would endure opposition faithfully by being sanctified by the truth. 
And note that even into the context of opposition from the world, Jesus affirms our commission to the world. Said, said differently, opposition to the gospel doesn't stop Jesus from sending us. He knew that we'd face opposition when he commissioned us, and so he's not surprised when we do. There's a reminder there that we need to come back to. There's a, there's a reminder there that we need to come back to when we're tempted to retreat and stay quiet because the world doesn't want to hear the message. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew we would be opposed when he sent us to the world. Going on, the book of Acts is replete with examples of the church opposed while also the church goes forth growing in power. Great opposition does not negate the Great Commission. The letters are full of opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For time, I read just that verse, but all of 3.10 through 4.8 would be worth you reading over again to see how Paul says that. But in, in the same context, Paul is calling Timothy to trust in the scriptures, all scriptures breathed out by God, and then calls him to preach the word. So he says, you're going to be persecuted. Trust in the word. Preach the word. Again, the response to opposition is to carry on with the calling. And Revelation is written as a whole to encourage the church to endure in the face of opposition. 14.12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Revelation promises that the church will be opposed in this world, calls us to endure that faithfully, and then promises us that the church now opposed will one day be the church victorious. As long as the church is in the world, the church will also be opposed. Look, at times the level of opposition may ebb and flow. Like we know that we don't face persecution the same way that our brothers and sisters do all around the world. At times, it may ebb and flow, but a broken, fallen system in rebellion to God will oppose God's people until the day when he finally judges the world. Church, we are promised opposition in this world. Some today would want to make this the church's fault. If the church just did what it was supposed to, if it was more loving, if it was more this or more that, then actually non-believers wouldn't be opposed. And certainly, certainly, there's always room to look to our hearts. We're called to bless those who curse us. We're called to answer with gentleness and respect. We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. So certainly, there's room to look to ourselves and ask whether at any point we're putting an unnecessary stumbling block in front of the world. But, hear me, do everything right, live lovingly, live graciously, speak with gentleness and respect, speak winsomely, and so on, and you'll still face opposition in this world. Again, if you're here today with us and you're not a Christian, don't mishear me. We're not opposed to you. 
It may be that you aren't opposed to being here today to hear this message because the Spirit of God is actually doing a work in you, softening you in order to draw you to himself in faith. Church, we are a set-apart people, and as a set-apart people, we will be opposed. So we now head back from this flash-forward and pick up the story again in live time around 537, just after verses 1 through 5. The third call of the passage is this. Despite facing even difficult opposition in the world, we as God's people must persevere in the work God has called us to. We must persevere in our calling. For the great start that we see in Ezra 1 through 3, we now see at the end of chapter 4 how the project goes off the rails a bit. We know that the, the work that God has called his people to rebuild the temple. And yet chapter 4 closes this way in verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And on first reading, we might be tempted to excuse them for stopping the work. I mean, do you see like the opposition that they face in verse 4 and 5? It says they discouraged the people. They made them afraid to build. and They bribed counselors. Like, come on, man, they wanted to do right, but the people rose up against them. For one, remember again that here around 537, Israel doesn't yet face the full-blown opposition of this decree making them stop. That's from later in the story. But even then, it wouldn't matter. When God calls his people to a mission, then God's people are to get after that mission regardless of how difficult it is, regardless of how costly it is, and regardless of what opposition they face. God knew the opposition that they would face when he called them to this task. It's not like he's on the throne scratching his chin saying, man, I didn't see that one coming. Let's regroup. But listen, we don't have to guess whether the people, what the people should have done. We don't have to guess what the people should have done because we have the prophets to help us here at this point, help us see how they should have persevered. Ezra 4 ends telling us that the work ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius. And then chapter 5, verse 1, opens with the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. If we look to Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1, it opens up in the second year of Darius. So Haggai's speaking into this very situation that we find at the end of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5. Haggai speaks from 520, something like 17 years down the road, but note this, as Haggai delivers the word of the Lord to this people, he doesn't come saying, man, I'm so sorry this happened to y'all. He comes with a scathing and penetrating rebuke, and it's one that honestly just cuts me every time I read it. Haggai chapter 1, 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. When we pick up Ezra chapter 5 in two weeks, we will delve more into that period around 520. But here's what we need to see today. Rather than abandoning the work because it got difficult, God's people should have persevered in the work that God was calling them to do, no no matter how much it cost them. And we must say that knowing full well that it would have cost them. It could have even cost them their very lives, and yet they should have persevered in the work. Look, when it says the enemies made them afraid, I don't think that they were afraid of being called names. They feared for their very safety and yet should have persevered in the work. They should have pressed on valuing the call and commission of God even over their own well-being. Church, God has called us to a mission today that we must pursue no matter what it costs us. We don't pursue that mission only when it comes to us. We don't pursue that mission only when it's easy. We don't pursue that mission only when we're unopposed. We persevere in God's call and commission proactively and intentionally. We persevere in God's call and commission no matter the difficulty, no matter the discomfort. And we persevere in God's call and commission no matter what it costs us. Some of, the, some of you, some of us, some of us hear this and, they say, and you say this. Man, do you know how busy my life is right now? And now you want to add something to it? I'm with you. Listen, I'm with you. Okay? So I don't say this at you. I say this for you. And I say this for us, including myself in it. If we read the words of Haggai 1 again, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So not at you, but for you, for us, I don't think we're on very good footing if we're banking on, Lord, I've packed my schedule so full of so many things that I just don't have time to do what you've called me to do. Time is real. Sometimes we need to figure out how to fold God's mission into what we're already doing. Spending time with him so that we're open to the opportunities that he does bring along our path. Not adding anything to the plate. But sometimes we need to step back, take inventory of how we're spending our time, and let some good things go in order to carve out more time for God's priorities in the world. And hear me on this, I am not talking about guilt and shame. 
God doesn't love you any more or any less based on your performance here. God loves you wholly as an adopted child based on Christ's performance. We don't need guilt and shame as the motivation for pursuing God's mission. We need grace to be our motivation. But conviction is not the same thing as guilt. True conviction is a grace from God, the Holy Spirit, that he uses to refine us. Church, as we think about persevering in the face of opposition, we do well to remember that we are opposed by three enemies. The flesh, the world, and the evil one. Two of those are external. But is it not true for you as it is for me? More often than being slowed by external opposition, we're slowed by our own flesh. Our passions are at war within us. Our priorities are mixed. Our zeal for his glory is too lukewarm. Our love for our neighbor is too mild and our desire for obedience is too low. Isn't that true that most often it's our own flesh that's our biggest opposition? God's called us to be a set-apart people living distinct from the world. And we're promised to face opposition from the world, yet we must persevere in our calling and commission for his glory and for the sake of the world. And if I may spoil the ending again, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where all of this is going. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that you'd use your word in us to refine us. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to help us fall out of love with the world. Lord, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us any places where we need to hear that this morning. Father, help us to love you so much and desire to glorify you so much that those decisions that we face in life are easy because it's just easy to say, I will glorify God. Father, help us to live as a distinct, set-apart people, reflecting you in, the, in this world. Lord, help, help us to reflect your holiness, help us to reflect uh, changed lives, But Lord, also help us to reflect your grace, your mercy, your invitation to all to come to Christ. And Lord, I do pray that you would continue to stir up in our midst more and more, more and more going with the gospel. Lord, make us faithful stewards of this gospel message. And Lord, show us, each of us, each of us, Lord, show us how we can be involved in going with the gospel that others might come to know you through us.
Father, I pray that you would do all this out of the healthy motivation of grace, out of being enraptured with your glory, out of love for our neighbor, and out of the desire to obey you. Father, guard us from shame, guilt that doesn't come from you. But let us, but help us to embrace conviction when something does come from you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.